ho 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 Merry Christmas mm. <laughs> that's sarcastic you alright there it's just that real odd note of sarcasm in your voice you sound like the um, bluetooth earpiece I bought recently <laughs> Headset connected. Power on. Jeez, getting a lot of attitude from my electronics. Do you know what? You just reminded me of one of my best ever Christmas gifts. Do you remember the flowers? Yeah, the dancing flowers. Yes, but I think mine was defective because it didn't do it properly. It was either just on or off. It was just on and it was going like that all the time. Or it was just off. But I then found out later on that it's actually supposed to be reacting to the, the sounds around it. So Right. So when you say on, you, you mean it was just the sound of grinding gears? Well, exactly, because the thing was just it going didn't constantly. Move. No, it moved, but oh, okay. it, it wasn't in any way reacting to the noises around it. It could have been in a, a, an empty room, silent, but it would be still going like that. Yeah, maybe it was a racing car model, I don't know. But anyway, So what are yes. we doing for our Christmas sitcom club special? <sighs> it is Christmas, isn't it? And it's your favourite time of the year, isn't it? I don't really have hierarchies of things, but yes, Christmas, I do go fully into Christmas. You step into Christmas. And my favourite version of that is not commercially available, which is very annoying. Don't ask your lonely tellers. So what sitcoms I can't are actually remember. I can't remember their name. What's the name? You know, the one, Cannibals. Toto Coelho. That's oh, yes, I, I know what you, you mean now. Yes. Okay, it is the sitcom club. It is Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. We've just watched a Christmas pop show that went out at Christmas after 1973 that had Slade on it as guests. <laughs> and, of course, what song did they sing? In for a penny. That was it. They did not come back on for the last song to do a Christmas hit. It's like, here's our new single. At some point in the future, we are planning on talking about pop shows on ITV. And it's not too much of a spoiler to say that we've got a bit of a theory about them. Namely, that there was some sort of rule, maybe it was, I don't know, equity or something. But basically, pop shows on ITV have lots of recognisable superstars that are just not performing any of the hits that you'd ever expect them to. So it's like the only way that they could lure them to the other side, away from pops, was to say, you can do that album track that you're really proud of. But when it comes to the Christmas shows we've watched, you've got a selection box. You were the one who picked these, so what was your... You were determined to keep the show on track. Criteria? Yes, because... It's boring listening to people talking about stuff that's not what they're meant to be talking it's about. It's Christmas time. You're allowed to talk about anything you want. That's the rule. As long as it's Christmassy. Speaking of which, I've got banana-flavoured... So what was... Sorin loaf next door. Your criterion oh. for picking these shows for our Christmas special. I've got bothrol as well. <laughs> no, the idea was that we would talk about Christmassy shows that have sort of been forgotten about, but... They're not so forgotten about that it's like something that might have gone out on S4C once on the 28th of December. Not quite that forgotten about level because we want it to be nice and inclusive and actually talk about shows that people have heard of. So we've got a nice little list here of programs that we've been watching recently. What order are we going to do them in? Are we going to do them chronologically? Are we going to do them from the ones we liked most to the ones we liked least or vice versa? Well, I know which one we're doing at the end because you've got plenty to say about it. So, okay, let's say, let's talk about the selection box first. Then we'll talk about Maynard. We'll talk about US Man About the House. We'll talk about a show which people, if it isn't already past Christmas Eve, can actually see on Talking Pictures TV this Christmas Eve. So we won't give away too much about that one. And then we'll talk about your favourite sitcom ever at the end. How's that? Okay. I kind of uh, dozed off there. What are we starting with? We're starting with... 
something which I think should have been a tradition every year and should still be on now in various guises. A lovely show called The Funny Side of Christmas, which was on the 27th of December, 1982, although that year, 27th of December, was a Boxing Day, and it was hosted by Frank Muir. It went out on BBC One opposite the Morecambe and Wise Christmas show on ITV. And it's pretty much, in its own little way, a comedic Christmas night with the stars, some 10 years after that show finished. And it's a nice little selection box, as we said, of seasonal sitcom specials for shows which may or may not have actually had a full Christmas special that year. But they're all five to seven minutes long or so. And one of the shows that we'll get to, because we're going to do it in the order that they came in the show, one of them is its only Christmas episode, which is rather hard to believe. But first of all, what do you think about my idea, Till? Should the funny side of Christmas not be on every year? I mean, this year it'll be hosted by, I don't know, Lee Mack or somebody. I don't understand why this seems to have been the only attempt in the 80s of doing purely comedic Christmas Night with the Stars. I can understand why Christmas Night variety shows stopped being a thing, but I imagine it's probably very expensive to do. Now, you say that, but actually there are a couple of other instances in the 80s of such a thing happening, even the year after. There was a show with Lenny Henry on BBC, but that, along with a show fronted by Jim Davidson a few years later on the other side, and also with Hilarious Consequences, fronted by Dennis Norton. They were compilations of shows that had already been on. So they were Yes. So that was a different thing entirely. I don't like your tone there. I don't no, 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 you no. Well was... you said that, but here's something different. Do you remember in the mid nineties All the Best for Christmas? No. That was same sort of thing. BBC show. One year it was Mike Yarwood fronting it in ninety four, I think it was. There was Brian Connolly one year and there was Ronnie Garbett another year. And they were basically yeah, again it was clips of old BBC shows, but lots of new linking material. And I think that usually went out on Christmas Eve. And it was a very nice wee program. I don't know why it's not still on. Any road up. We're here to talk about 1982. Tell you what, this is not something, unfortunately, which is commercially available, nor am I aware of this ever really having been repeated. I think probably little bits and pieces of it have been used in various clip shows over the years. But on the internet, and you may be aware of such a thing, there's been a, a sort of a VHS rip of this been doing the rounds for about 10 years now. I think it was around about yeah, 2007, 2008 when I first got hold of this. And there it is. And, and bits and pieces of it, probably each and every individual component, each and every individual little sitcom is probably doing the rounds on YouTube. So if any of these take your fancy, just pop in the name of the show, add Christmas into YouTube, you almost certainly find it. First of all, the story of Reginald Perrin did not end in 79. It ended in 82. Because we've got a lovely little Christmas day with Reggie and Elizabeth. And who should turn up but everybody? Sing the catchphrases. David Nobbs didn't really bring his A game to this, did he? Oh, how dare you. What was it you said about the last series of I Didn't Know You Cared? By that point, it was largely people just sort of booming their catchphrases straight in the lens. That's my memory of it, yes, including... uh... I've forgotten the name of the uncle, but... Uh, he was I am by... that, pardon! Yes, Leslie Cerrone, and he didn't seem quite so faded and lost. And they then brought in another character, I think, with a new catchphrase, tip-top. So, okay, so it's Christmas Day, and there's Reggie and Elizabeth, and they're saying, do you know what, it's Christmas, and yet, I don't know, something's missing. And then, turning up are, basically, we've got Sue Nichols, and we've got John Barron, and Trevor Adams, and 
There's John Horsley as Doc Morrissey, and we've got Jeffrey Palmer, of course, and there's Michael Ripper turning up as well. And he's going to turn up again later on something else. But yeah, so they're all there, and it's like, oh, Merry Christmas, Reggie. So if, if you want to see it, it's on YouTube, like I say. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's an essential addition to the canon. So if you've been following all the series, then you watch the Legacy, then you watch the Martin Clunes version and what have you. If you're an absolute completist, you might want to have this on your shelf, but I wouldn't worry about losing important plot points if you haven't got a copy of this. You know, we use the word canon to describe an entire body of fictional work because of a slightly sarcastic joke. Oh? Well, it was first really used for the Sherlock Holmes stories, and as far as I know, it was first used by Father Ronald Knox in an essay he wrote, and he talks about the Holmes canon, but apparently the general thrust of the essay was actually making fun of the way certain people were writing about the Bible. But it popularised the idea of the Sherlock Holmes canon, and then that started getting applied to other things. Ronald Knox, of course, uh, invented On the Hour. Well, he did the first fake news broadcast that I'm aware of on British radio. What comes after Reginald Perrin? I don't have much to say about Reginald Perrin. It was nice seeing everybody together, but there was no real message. There was no real thrust. There was no real anger. There was no madness. That was exactly the point I made, or was about to make, before that, that crucial, pivotal interruption came in. Because I was going to say that part of the appeal of this show all around is just seeing everybody. So if you haven't seen Reggie Perrin or new Reggie Perrin for three years, it's just nice to see them all again. And This is I like your this... theory of the perfect two Ronnie's Christmas special. It was a trailer for Christmas on BBC One in 1980-whenever, and they just show little clips, and one of the clips is the two Ronnies dressed, I think, as Circus Strongmen, strutting round the ring, and, and you thought that that should have been the entire show. It should have been just like an hour of them just strutting round and then you could just kind of fall half asleep and then just, oh, they're still there. Great. There they are. And you didn't have to pay attention to it. Well, my theory was that that would be perfect for post-Queen viewing because usually you want something on there which is not too demanding on your attention span. So the idea is that you're sort of sleeping off the Christmas lunch and if you've got like a big film, that should follow a little bit later. So have something like the Generation Game on straight after the Queen where it's just like you can dip in and out and what have you. So that was my idea, basically. It's like, well, hey, it's two Ronnies. You don't need to pay any attention. It doesn't even matter if the sound is off because you don't need to give it your concentration. But if you are just concentrating on it, you're still going to enjoy it anyway. That's my idea and I'm sticking to it. Now, two other things I'll say about that. One, did we not just watch something that was two and a half hours long that was pretty much like that? Night of a Hundred Stars from 1980, which large parts of it are Millicent Martin and Julia McKenzie singing about various celebrities who then walk on and bow and then clear off again without doing anything. Here's the army game! And there would come Harry Fowler and Bill Fraser and Alfie Bass. An American ceremony, I don't know if it was the Emmys or something like that, that used to do something similar. People would walk on and maybe sing a little bit of their theme tune. She had Loretta Swit singing Suicide is Painless and Adam West walking onto the Batman theme sort of staggering though I'm not making any implication no, about no, no. Adam West's fitness to be on stage it just seemed more like oh, I better do something and uh, it's meant to be silly but I'm wearing a tuxedo here I'm not dressed as Batman but I do something that indicates it's a bit of a laugh so he kind of walks in a peculiar fashion 
One final point on this, by the way. Trailers for shows can be misleading. All I'm going to say, Till, is... <laughs> are you, yeah, you're already thinking of it. Christmas night, 1986, EastEnders. Oh, it's going to be the feel-good party of the year. Hooray! Yes, it shows the uh, residents of Albert Square doing a conga. As those words leave my lips, it sounds like some spoof nonsense I made up. But it really isn't. And in case you're... Trying to remember the year in question. Yes, it is that one. In case you thought there really was a feel-good year for EastEnders ones. Okay, well, the next one is not a sitcom. It was lovely little skit with Les Dawson and Lloyd Bannerclough as Sissy and Ada. They were great, yes. Then we had an ultra-brief edition of Yes Minister. And I know that that is on YouTube. So if you put in Yes Minister Christmas, it's not anything to do with party games, the feature length. Have a look at it. It's on YouTube. And that one does hold together. I mean, it's a very... Thin joke, but it's in character. It doesn't take long. It's exactly what you want. It's more reflective of the show itself than Perrin one was. Now, here's something a little bit odd, because we do have a Christmas, Only Fools and Horses, in 1982. The episode Diamonds Are for Heller, which, like every other Christmas edition and probably every other regular edition, is currently playing on gold at the moment. But that year, we have a bonus episode. We have Only Fools and Horses. It's called Christmas Trees. It's about sort of seven minutes or so long, and it's all on location. It's Del Boy in the market trying to flog, as the name suggests, Christmas trees. And this is one of these occasionally shows up on hooky DVDs that you get on eBay where it says, Only Fools, the lost shows, none of which are actually lost. But you'll get this alongside that one about the oil company and the Gulf War special and all that kind of stuff. As it was, it was quite a nice little diversion. There was also another Only Fools and Horses Christmas special that nobody ever sees, which was actually done for Breakfast Time in 1985. I think it goes under the title of White Mice, and it's principally Lynn Foldswood having to go to Del Boy in the market. I don't mean with a like a big stick or anything. I just you know that's <laughs> that's the gist of it. Yeah, this was nice. This is a nice little silly bit of business. Yeah, nothing much to add. Like Yes Minister, it's brief, but it's in character. Now another non-sitcom follows. We've got skits from Free of a Kind. And then one which I think did make an impression on you, because I think this is probably the one that they got the most reaction from you when we're watching this. The Christmas 82 edition of Last of the Summer Wine, in which they appear oh, not yes. to be celebrating Christmas, and yet they sort of are, and then three women turn up. Compo appears to have engaged the services of three sex workers. <laughs> I'm trying to be 2010s about it. You know, you have to, you can't just stop there. You've got to, you've got to. Give some extra explanation for that. He turns up, he's all dressed up, and then he then he mentions some people are coming, and they come in, and their mode of dress. And admittedly, 1982, the um, certainly looking at top of the pops, maybe it's just zoo that are like that. The uh, boundaries between the wardrobe of sex worker and pop crazed youngster was not quite so thick as it would be in later epochs but they look like that not in a full Roy Clark way actually Roy Clark has an interesting approach to women and particularly women of certain sorts these felt more out of place they seemed a little bit too young and groovy I think we should offer some clarification that they arrive and then are gone within about two minutes I'm thinking that Roy Clark wrote himself into a bit of a corner it's like well either they go or they stay. And I can't show what happens if they stay. I don't know. Maybe he submitted a script just to get a reaction. Oh, 
that would have been fabulous, but obviously it wasn't going in that direction. It wasn't even nine o'clock by this point, so there was never any prospect of anything like that. But again, that entire skit is on YouTube, and I think with probably most of this stuff, like I said, it is the fun of just seeing everybody, just seeing everybody at Christmas. I'm not actually all that fussed whether the you plot see, holds Glass together. With Glass of the Summer Wine, it's not so much whether it's classic or not or dreadful. With Glass of the Summer Wine, it's just quite nice seeing a bit of Glass of the Summer Wine you haven't seen before. And it's all in Clegg's living room. It's in somebody's living room, which usually they were, they were more out and about and home locations were not seen as often at that period of the show. So it's not so special seeing those three together, but it's like, oh, it's it's a bit of Last of the Summer Wine that hasn't been repeated endlessly. That's the main thing for me. I'm not really too fussed if this is canon or if it has any plot at all or anything like that. It's just a nice, feel-good, seasonal bit of business. We follow this up with Ronnie Corbett in Sorry. There's a lot of debate about whether Muller's turkey is edible in comparison to others which are available and so on. Yeah, it actually, my mind was wandering during this and I was sort of thinking, I wish there'd been a My Husband and I Christmas special and now I'm starting to think that probably there was. Okay, this is literally a different effect from Last of the Summer Wine. Timothy Lumsden mouthing off through his mother in the kitchen. It just kind of blurs in my memory as... I imagine at some point I'll remember a line from this and be unable to remember if that was an actual episode. There wasn't really any demarcation line to say this is a sorry Christmas special or to say here's a leftover scene from an episode of Sorry. Butterflies. Michael Ripper is now the chauffeur again. He is not the tramp that he was earlier on in the Do you the think Reggie maybe Perrin they skit. should have done um oh what was that film with Joe Brown and Marty Wilde? What a crazy world. Do you think Michael Ripper should have been in every sketch? And I do like that idea, yes. And also he should have been in every programme on BBC that evening. <laughs> Even on BBC too. But never at the same time. So you've got to sort of follow them around using the Radio Times as your guide. Got to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of butterflies. I think we gave butterflies a savaging when we did sitcoms in the middle class. I'm not really sure that you would get much of this if you'd never seen butterflies before. Because a lot of it is... Ha! Aha! Hang on. Michael Ripper's not the only person having a double bubble that night, is he? Of course, no, he isn't, is he? No, they're, they're coming up with it. Ah, no, 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 but also David Jason, because he's still to come. And Jeffrey Palmer. There you go. Hang on a minute, this wasn't expensive to make. <laughs> no, but with Nicholas Lindhurst, he's so different from his earlier... I guess I'm trying to say, what a gifted actor. I can imagine you're not really suddenly thinking, what's Rodney doing there? He's got sufficient acting ability that you can see a great deal of separation between the two. Jeffrey Palmer, for good or ill, is usually cast in a certain type. So Jimmy is not massively different from Mr. Dentist, but different enough. It's. I think that Ben's probably better organised, generally speaking. I don't think that, that he would have a Jimmy-style cock up on the catering front at Christmas. But it would be nice if they were to meet. That's what was missing from this. We didn't get any, I know it's a horrible expression, but it's the one they use nowadays, mashups. We didn't get any crossovers in this. That would have been fun. People didn't think about fiction in those terms in those days. We're always doing this. If you heard recently, I was on an edition of Just One More Thing, podcast about Colombo, and at one point I got a bit off topic and had to be brought back on topic because I started discussing fictional universes and, as it turns out, Macmillan and Wife are fictional in Columbo's world. Oh, hey, I've just had a thought. Is there any instance of 
in a, it would have to be a long-running show. So any instance of characters moving from in that universe to fictional or vice versa. Jess Sherman is a real film critic in The Simpsons, but in The Critic, The Simpsons are fictional characters. Okay. Actually, if you want to start building a shared universe for mystery shows, um, Diagnosis Murder is a good place to start because one of those is a sequel to an episode of Mannix. We have a nice little Smith & Jones sketch before Smith & Jones, as in the last Smith & Jones is a thing. So this is about a year and a bit before Smith & Jones, but it's post, not in the o'clock news. And we've got a nice little skit with Griffiths Jones as a hospital visitor. And that is followed by our finale, and it's the only Christmas edition of this sitcom, unbelievably, Open All Hours. You'd think, wouldn't you? You'd think there'd be a ton of Open All Hours. Christmas shows, but new. Just this one. And it's Christmas morning. Am I right in thinking, dip into your memory bank here, am I right in thinking that this might just, oh, what's the word? Not predict, but envisage somehow see forth into the future. There's some discussion about Granville and Mavis getting together for Christmas. And of course, that's now a thing with still open all hours. It's almost like they're written by the same person. Oh, What? It's basically Arkwright not really looking forward to having to shut the shop for an entire day. And then we started gabbing about the fact that you didn't really go out on Christmas Day. And there was once a shop that was open for a few hours in Rolligan one Christmas morning. And I went there to get cranberry sauce because we'd forgotten it. And that was about us. So I thought this was a lovely little show. Like I say, pretty much all I think the, the main show- thing about the open all hours was you got to hear Arkwright saying, I'll come, I'll come, Emmanuel, but put the word Gladys in there. So, like I say, pretty much all of the individual components are on YouTube, and it's a very nice little feel-good show. It's perfect for that time of year as well, where it's a couple of days removed from Christmas. So it's a nice balancing act between, okay, it's all Christmassy-themed and what have you, but it's not quite the sort of variety show or carol service or that kind of thing where it's, it's all, you know, peace to all, and we all hope that you have a wonderful time and what have you. It's a little bit more sort of laid back. And Frank Muir's links are superb in it. Frank Muir, same height as Darth Vader. You've mentioned that. And yet Dave Prowse does not appear in this show. Frank Muir doesn't appear in Star Wars. Wasted opportunities everywhere. Very much so. So, moving on to the first of our actual full-length, feature-length Christmas shows. Selwyn Froggett, 1977. Featuring an appearance by somebody who's not usually in Oh No, It's Selwyn Froggett. I've never taken LSD, but... Until tonight! I gather one of the things it does is it kind of, like, puts you back into your childhood, maybe brings things out. Just memories that had faded. Uh, Watching Selwyn Froggett was, (laughs) like, taking LSD for me. Suddenly remembering the old world that I (laughs) grew up in, where buildings were black, no sandblasting, drafty corridors, the smell of uh, social clubs... That whole kind of world, yeah, it's just like, gosh, I just forgot this is what late 70s, early 80s Yorkshire was like in places. So in Frog, it's a little bit awkward for me in that it does kind of feel like he's, um, what's the uh, most sensitive way of putting it? Okay, so Selwyn Frogger is somebody who tries very much to fit in to the social scene, but his social skills are a little bit different from everybody else's. And so... He can sometimes be a bit sort of overbearing and, and he can bore people and what have you with his 
knowledge because he's, he's he's very well read and he's got lots of facts at his disposal and what have you. And this isn't always appreciated by the regular members of the social club. So hence the name, oh no, it's Selwyn Frog because as soon as he comes into the place, it's like Scarper. But he's not a bad person by any means, but I think he's somebody who you could take his company in small doses, but you wouldn't necessarily want to be stuck with him in the corner for two or three hours. Was later remade as Derek. Admittedly, in the remake, there were more German people being murdered, but I should have an explanation. Not going to do it, though. It's telling that the pilot was written by Roy Clark, the series wasn't written by Roy Clark. So Alan Plater wrote the main body of... It's an Alan, isn't it? It's Alan Plater. Yeah, okay. Roy Clark wrote the pilot, and most of the series is written by Alan Plater. And then Alan Plater left. <laughs> Along with everybody else. So I'm curious as to what Selwyn's meant to be as opposed to the way Selwyn comes across. But it means that sometimes some of the stuff, instead of just being, oh, just a bunch of the local people just having a bit of fun with somebody who's just a little bit too bumptious, it does feel like they're being cruel to a man who can't really cope with the world. And that sounds stupid when I say it. It's, and I'm nice, it's a really very faint feeling. It's just kind of a peculiar aura that I could see if I wanted to take it that way sometimes. Okay, I don't like people being mean to Selwyn. Come on. And I do like the fact that the local children, it's meant to be a children's home that he's at at the beginning, doing it. They love him. I think maybe it's in the light of later comedy. There seemed to be this point, and I mean, this was bound up with the alternative comedy, not running counter to it. There was a kind of glee in belittling awkward misfits who were uncool, even if it was because of certain special needs they had. Does that make sense? Alternative comedy always seemed to me, the way that they would portray itself was supposed to be pushing back against discrimination, but what it seemed to be doing was simply changing the, the, the cast of people that it was discriminating against. I'm, I can't really think of an example from alternative comedy on television. It was more sort of the subsets of fans. The anger started just being turned on anybody who was vulnerable. I'm going to say that more kind of maybe came to fruition a bit in the 90s. I mean, some of the stuff in the 11 o'clock show. I was just thinking of something just now, actually, because I've just been watching on YouTube a documentary about Newman and Bedil and them being on tour in late 93 where they were just about to break up. Every time I see their sketches from that particular era, there was definitely a nasty feel to a lot of them. A lot of them are very well written and some of the, the the monologues that they do are quite endearing but some of the sketches that they do the, the targets seem undeserving and then i had an interview with rob newman which i think was from around about 2007 when he was talking about his current one-man show which is obviously a completely different type of thing to what he was doing before and he actually said i'd like to think that i don't do that sneering kind of comedy anymore so he was sort of acknowledging that some of the stuff that he'd done in 93 he wouldn't do later on. I would imagine that David Baddiel, because of course now he's writing children's books and what have you, that they would be very sort of inclusive and very sort of welcoming and what have you in the way that they're structured and presented. Like we said it on just the previous Jaffaville, previous podcast, that the sort of all-inclusive feeling, the order that's around these days, Sometimes it can be slightly hypocritical. Sometimes it can not quite live up to its own standards, but it's certainly preferable to what we had sort of 20-odd years ago. And yeah, with Selwyn Froggett, yes, I know what you mean. It's a little bit uncomfortable at times when 
you've got. Yeah, but this is not. Yeah, it's not so much a case of taking something and saying it was wrong then and it's wrong now. It's a different show when you've grown up in the era of Joey Deacon jokes. Mm. And it's not always the really obvious stuff that doesn't age well. If you look at a program like It Was All Right in the 70s, you've got people talking about, oh, I can't believe that they did that kind of thing then and you'd never get away with that kind of thing now. But there are a lot of shades of grey in that. So it's not just that you wouldn't get a show like Love Thy Neighbour in 2018. There are also little bits and pieces. There are little instances of you know, the way that people are represented and portrayed and what have you across all manner of different shows from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and I dare say even probably the 2000s as well. And there's almost certainly going to be things from the early 2000s that you wouldn't even do nowadays. And I think people are probably a lot more cautious now as well. Well, anyway, the basic idea behind this Selwyn Froggett is uh, he ends up looking after a grumpy old man who turns out not to be quite so mean-spirited as you'd think, but he likes people thinking he's grumpy and horrible. It's something that comes through. I mean, it comes through in some Roy Clark stuff, comes through in Peter Tinniswood which is northern people, particularly Yorkshire people, really enjoy being miserable. Is there an art to it? I think it's um, because of all the Vikings. They hit the East Coast and they got melded into that part of England. I I think it's some of that um, Scandinavian miserabilism. So, uh, Love of Ada. Gentle comedy. We're not going to talk a great deal about Love of Ada. And the reason for that is that we watched the show with the intention of talking about it. And then we discovered, I think it was actually the day after we discovered that the show is on Talking Pictures TV this Christmas Eve. And I'm sure there'll probably be get a, a second showing or something like that if you listen to this after Christmas Eve. But if you're not, if it's the 24th, then you'll find it on Talking Pictures TV, the absolute best channel anywhere on satellite or indeed anywhere in the world. And it's on at 10 minutes to 5 o'clock. So we'll talk about For the Love of Ada. Uh, a little, but we're not going to go into any great detail about the plot of this one, so we don't spoil it for you. This is, you said it yourself, gentle comedy. The same sort of vibe that you get from what you said there about recognising the locations and what have you in Selwyn Froggett. There's a nice sort of feeling about that here. This is perfect for Christmas viewing because it is gentle and it's not necessarily the kind of show that I could imagine an entire family actually sitting down watching because... You know, a lot of the comedy is to do with the generation gap and so on between the elderly, newly married couple and also their uh, middle-aged daughter and son-in-law. So I'm not necessarily sure that this is something that would appeal to the entire family, but definitely... Parts of it weren't comedy. There was one part when Wilfred Pickle's character just starts talking about Christmas with his family and it becomes a little gentle reminiscence... And it's about the lights, and he used to like to sit at the top of the stairs and just listen to them. And then there's some sort of mellow, weak little jokes like, oh, he could get drunk on Sherry Trifle. That gets a big whoop from the audience, even though it's, um... There's a faint meet-the-wife vibe as well, I think, on the Jack Smither side of things. So it's a gentle love story about two old people and their reminiscences melded to a fairly straightforward mainstream sitcom. Of course, it's... Vince Powell and Harry Driver, and that's it. If that sounds like an ingredient for a relaxing time for you, go to it. But Jack Smithers really good at playing creeps, isn't he? <laughs> yes. I mean, his character doesn't come off well in this. I think a big part of the appeal of Phil Veda is just the the warmth that the audience have to the two leads, Cyrene Handel and Wilfred Pickles. Two people who find love later in life. 
yeah, the audience for this in 72, yeah, they've grown up watching the two of them for decades. And so, again, that's a big part of the appeal of this. I suppose you could say, in a way, it's similar to something like Boomers now, with John Cleese. A lot of the time, it's just, it's just an appeal about seeing somebody that you recognise and thinking, oh, isn't this themselves? Just before we started recording, I just finished re-watching Three's Company. I don't like the plot of this one. It's two plots melded, isn't it? It's principally a Christmas edition, which is only 10 minutes long. This is the Man About the House Christmas special from 1973 as a component of All-Star Comedy Carnival. And that's the bulk of this particular script. But of course, in this case, it's more like 21 minutes. So, okay, is this an American thing? I don't know, you're going to have to give me some sort of cultural guidance on this because I am aware that for yourselves, like, when it's Christmas Day, it's like, oh, that's it then. Everybody goes and watches ice hockey or something. But whereas in Britain, of course, it's like, hey, it's Christmas Day, fantastic. This slight sort of oversimplification, but you get the gist. But there they all are, ringing up people on Christmas morning, sort of inviting them to come to a party. And it's like, that wouldn't happen in the UK, would it? Yeah, I suppose that's right. The Americans have a different approach to Christmas Day. You know this rule that we've sort of just made up about how nobody goes outdoors on Christmas Day? Does that also apply to using the phone? Because I have no memory at all of ever phoning anybody up on Christmas Day. Just the very idea of it would be somewhat... I don't say it never happened at my Christmases, but it wasn't a component of Christmas. No. It's like ringing people after 10 o'clock at night. It's just, it's just not something you do. It's different nowadays. What with your social media and what have you, and, and you know everything's just gone to hell. But yeah, back then, you know, there were standards. So there they all are. It's Christmas morning. Where hey, and Jack's, you know, as he usually is, and Joe and Chrissy, they are looking for something to do. They're looking for somewhere to go, and they've left this whole party organization business very late. I have to say, this they should have done this weeks ago. And then a point of confusion entered our viewing of this, because you suddenly realised that the Roper's home was attached to the Freeze Company home. That's just me not paying attention, so we don't need to dwell on that. There's no revelation, there's no insight. I just misunderstood the geography of the place. So what was it you didn't like about the plot of this? I don't like the fact that both of them could go to the party and they're having a thoroughly miserable time and missing a good hour or so of the party, maybe more. I'm just thinking, oh, it's a shame. <laughs> that it's happening. What time did they arrive at the party? Had it been going on for a couple of hours? Well, yeah, but they're, they're late night ravers, aren't they? They're young people. So they have these booze ups like you get in Don't Just Lie There, Say Something with Brian Ricks and Leslie Phillips. If it's Derek Griffiths and Katie Manning that are staging the party, there was no end to it. It's going to be all night. So don't worry about it. You're going to leave during the daylight, no matter what time you arrive. I don't know, certain things, they just wind me up. Like, I, I don't like just a minute, it's too tense for me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Nicholas Parsons is in charge of it. It's all right. He's He's got a grip on things. It's not going to get out of hand. Was there any jiggle in this? I think there was a little bit early on. You had to explain to me what that means, because I didn't know anything about this ABC rule. Was it a rule? Was it, was it what, a legal requirement? Or, I think or what? ABC had become... And had been for some time traditionally the third of the three networks of the time. And so one of the innovations Fred Silverman brought to the network was jiggle shows. And I believe Three's Company was considered to be that. So that there were always opportunities for Suzanne Summers and Joyce DeWitt to wear close-fitting clothing 
and move at the same time. And of course, Stanley, because he's always doing his. Uh, but to the beginning, they're carrying the wearing their night dresses. Janet is wearing that football jersey or is it a hockey? I don't know. That kind of thing that she seems to be wearing in every episode where she's just got up. Jack kisses the girls without really asking permission. You wouldn't get that now. Have we said everything? You 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 really said? you really don't want to talk about this last show, do you? I've got lots of notes. Oh yes. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Okay, right. Including something that will bring us back to Selwyn Froggart and the Joey Deacon jokes. Okay, how am I going to approach this? Okay. You really liked Mulberry, didn't you? Yes, so did you. Yes. Okay, so let's say that we are an online streaming platform in 2018. So you've watched Mulberry. You might also have watched a few minutes of an episode of Brushstrokes. You really like Carl Howman. Therefore, (laughs) you will absolutely love, love, this new ITV series from 1998 with Carl Howman and Denise Van Outen and Natalie Walter and Samantha Janis. And it's ITV returning to sitcom. I think it's the same year that they did Barbara as well. And it's like, well, hey, free walls and an audience. But hey, this is not for you squares because this is actually cutting edge. And these women are going to do things and going to swear and all manner of stuff so this is not family friendly viewing no this is it this is where it happens if you've been watching the word or the girly show whatever quit that get over to itv because this is the here and now we are of course talking about the hapless but yet two series sitcom babes in the wood from 1998-1999. Till you could not get enough of this. I've sent you every single episode that there is of this. You've watched them all six times. I know you're asking me when they're going to make some more. What, what is this? What is this obsession you've got with it? That's your idea of a joke, saying somebody likes something they don't like. It's the only one I've got, right? It's my shtick. It's my material. You're turning into Vince Powell. <laughs> By the way, I'm friends with Bernie Clifton. Or what? No, no, but it's Bernie Winters, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm friends with somebody famous. No, I'm not. But I, we are going to do that. We are going to do a sitcom club about the Vince Powell script. The thing is, right, that, that even though you got the name wrong, I bet you if we go through every single Vince Powell sitcom there ever was, I bet you we will find that script with Bernie Clifton in it. It's only going to be a matter of time before it turns up. So my hang-up about Babes in the Wood, I don't know. I mean, is it just because I'm a miserableist? Is it because I don't like seeing young people having fun? Yeah, I think that's it. So, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, see you next year. It just seemed very mechanical and joyless, and it, I can't quite tie this neatly to the show, but I've mentioned this before. It was in a book about the Marx Brothers, and it was talking about the Marx Brothers film Room Service, and said there's this idea going around that if you get good actors and a good script and a good director you'll get a good product. And it doesn't really happen like that. The stuff that's hugely famous, the mega hits, they always have some little magic that nobody ever quite pins down. People talk and talk and talk and talk and they do podcasts about it. But the stuff that's really legendary always has something that calls to people that cannot be named, cannot be defined. And this feels like the product of somebody who said... Right, what are the things we want to do? We want a sitcom. We want to reflect young people now. What are the types? What will sell? And it just feels like the most generic, in a way, idea. It just 
somebody's just gone A to B to C to D. These are the qualities we are looking for, and this will somehow work. This Christmas special was commissioned before the first series had aired. They were so sure they were going to have a big hit on their hands. And you can see the ingredients kind of sticking out. There's a Spice Girls element to it, right? It's third wave feminism, sex positive girls. One of them's a ladette. One of them is completely infantilized. And one of them is also a woman. (laughs) I'm just having difficulty. Samantha Jadis, it's not so much that she's got a um, not well-defined character, but she doesn't seem to have a shtick quite like the other two. Can I just interrupt you to say I am advised by IMDb that since this program was made, Samantha Janice is now known as Samantha Womack, by the way. In keeping with sitcoms having the finger on the pulse, I think I'm right in saying that by the time this actually gets onto the screen, I think the Spice Girls, I think Jerry's already left, hasn't she? They've probably broken up if they haven't already or something. It's the way sitcom works. It's not always bang on top of things. I just have a feeling there is a specific... Spice Girls thought in there. Oh, there definitely is, yeah. It's a year after Spice World, isn't it? There's also that we need a British version of Friends. And yeah, it's just made by people who uh, generate media product, ultimately. I'm not saying everybody who worked on this is a soulless monster. Not everybody. Okay, Carlton then. Yes! That's it. Ultimately, somewhere in this, there is somebody who has got a flowchart and Babes in the Wood is the result of that flowchart. So it might have been written by wonderful writers. I don't have any complaints about the acting, complaints about the characters, but nobody acts poorly in this. But it's just joyless. Young people in the 90s, I think, had something of an identity crisis. I'm told I was one at the time, but there's a faint feeling of what is it young people do? We have to do that it's where you end up with Britpop, which is very consciously copying moves from earlier and expecting the same result. It's like you're not shocking people, you're not breaking new ground, but you want the same amount of praise. In the early to middle 20th century, young people were not listened to. By the time the 90s comes along, young people are being listened to and they are being targeted. They have become the key demographic, but they're acting like they're not. Everything they see is, oh, that should be something for young people. There's somebody over 50 having a good time. They should tear that down and, and make something for young people. Although, yeah, no, I think that what you're saying is, is pretty much BBC policy now, isn't it? And so, in a way, this is a product. I mean, this is our generation. This is Generation X. These people who are being very well served by the media and going, actually, I have something to say. Yeah, everybody's been listening to everything we have to say. Um, All we've got is what we already had, but cheaper and sweeter. And you keep acting like there's something dreadful being unsaid. Uh, Some boundary that has to be broken, and a lot of the boundaries are broken. I think that's why in some ways we started to slip backwards. Not you, but when you see people complaining about the kind of Tumblr liberal culture, the pink-haired culture, I'm not using those as pejoratives, but I'm saying that's one of the things that's defined the 2010s. I think part of it is these people don't quite realise some of that ground had been gained before and had slipped back in the 90s. And so, yes, there was this, there was the new lad, which was something of a reaction against the new man. 
And then you end up with Babes in the Wood, and it's like, hey, they're three sex-positive young women, but yeah, in the second half, obviously, they're just going to be wearing sexy outfits. Are they acting on their own terms? Or what are the terms? What's happening? Again, it feels like something that's like, well, right, we're looking at our Q3 uh, profit projections here. I really think if you want to sell this, then by minute 16, uh, one of them needs to be dressed as a French maid, one of them needs to be dressed as a nurse, and one of them uh, needs to be in a latex catsuit. And funnily enough, that did happen, didn't it? Yes. And Carl Howman was in a carrot suit. I mean, Carl Howman in the French maid suit, that would have been a laugh. I feel bad in some ways, because it's almost like I'm accusing the women in the cast of being not traitors to the cause. Yeah, being, but, yeah, but you know, I know you mean, not being party to it, yes. yeah. The 90s ladette and girl power thing, that was partially about saying, no, we can do these things on our own terms, but the money men were already there. Ready to say, fantastic, back to the 70s, go on, love, thing. I have met women, you know. Sounds like I think they're sort of theoretical. Well, here's a fun fact for you. <laughs> the final episode did not actually go out. Well, hey! And it's not for any reason of content. There was just an extended news at 10 that night, and it just, it just didn't. It never got <laughs> rescheduled. And I'm actually in possession of it. So at some point, we might actually do a sitcom club on the unseen, untransmitted uncensored maybe it all comes together of course they were right all along well Samantha Janus wasn't in the second series Womack not at the time this was made sorry do you want to describe the three characters okay so well I think you've done a pretty good job yourself but okay in this Christmas special so we're still with the season one cast so we've got Leigh who is Denise Van Outen so I suppose you would say that she's sort of like the the ladette and what have you which means she insults everybody and then looks around for laughs We've got Carolyn, who's played by Natalie Walter, and she's a sort of infantile one who's like oh, sort of ditzy. And Samantha Janice slash Womack is playing Ruth. And she's like, would you say that she's probably the one who is most realistic, maybe, in a way? Yeah, and she's probably a portrayal of the career woman. And then we've got Carl Homan, who sort of hangs around in the corner with a big pair of binoculars. Right, goes, okay, here's the problem. <laughs> no, he doesn't. he doesn't. He doesn't do that at all. The publicity stills, this is the first time I've ever watched an episode, I, I thought that in some way he was their big brother figure. Right. I'm just thinking now of the monkeys. The pilot tested disastrously, and they found that it was much, much more successful when they wrote out the manager. Then they stopped being answerable to this authority figure. It was suddenly playing better. And... That might have spiked its gun somewhat. Okay, in this one, Carl Harmon's the one in a tizzy needing their help. But I'm just wondering if that might have been an impression that was given off by the pre-publicity. That it's like, it's about three young women doing it the wrong way. But don't worry, Carl Harmon's looking after them. And then it turns out he is Mulberry. And he says, come on, girls. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's a point where the ditzy character uh, misunderstands something. I can't remember. The punchline is something, where would we be without Sprouts? And she then does what I believe is known as a belm, which is that thing of putting your tongue under your lower lip to make fun of certain people we've alluded to earlier. Yes. The constant insults. I mean, every character, apart from the dirty one, insults every other character. And I know I've said this little rule about sitcoms, which is you can say things that in real life would be hurtful, but it's okay. It's within the rules. But in this, this just seemed to be their only way of communicating was either mildly being supportive or then just going a joke about you're stupid, you're old, you're not me. Die! Let's put our tinsel on the table, so to speak. This wants to be an American show. And it isn't. 
and it looks like a very traditional sitcom which has got some sort of pretensions about being very slick. Remember I was saying off-air? We, we Do we know who wrote it? Because it's not like that information was on the end credits and I could have written it down. I didn't realise it was going to make this point. Various people wrote it. The creator was Jeff Dean and there were also a handful of other writers for individual. I was just thinking, okay, because it sounds like I'm objecting to the idea of a sitcom about a bunch of young sexually active women, but... I'm guessing that Jeff Dean was not himself a young, sexually active woman uh, making his way through third wave feminism in the 90s. So maybe there was just kind of a point of view issue. And I'm not saying he had no right to be doing this. No, it's fine. You don't have to write only what you know. If you've got the ability to construct something competent or better than competent, that's fine. But I'm just thinking... It would have benefited more from a slightly different outlook, but then the point of view might have been a bit more caustic, and therefore not what Carlton wants for its Q3 profit projections. Right, here's the thing. When we're watching this, I remember saying to yourself, I was asking you if you'd ever seen Badil's Syndrome on Sky 1 in 2000. So the story goes about that. There was a move within Sky at the time to rejig the Sky premiere film channel into something more akin to HBO and they were going to be making their own series as well and make it look like Sky Atlantic is now basically make it like really sort of high-end production values and what have you and supposedly Bedeal Syndrome was earmarked for this channel and in the interim between being commissioned and being made there was a rejig of people at the top and then the idea of rejigging Sky Premier got abandoned so suddenly Video Syndrome finds itself on Sky 1 and it's now a very traditional looking free walls videotape sitcom. I sort of got the impression a little bit that that's what was going on here and then you told me that there was a non-broadcast pilot of this that had a different cast apart from Carl Herman, is that right? I guess I must have read that in the RT guide and then forgot that I read that in the RT guide. Because <laughs> it does feel like something that's intended to be single camera, no audience, and it's like, look what we can do, eh? This is it. This is actually the cutting edge. And we'll have you. We're ITV and we're way. There we are. And that's not how it's turned out. I would be interested to actually hear what sort of process this idea went through from start to finish. You once asked what happened in the 90s. You asked that last week on Jafferville. Self-consciousness. Excessive self-consciousness. People started writing things and in their mind was how it was going to be perceived in years to come. People started talking about, well, this is our Sergeant Pepper. No, you don't get to decide what your Sergeant Pepper is. And so there's that thing about, oh, right, yes, I mean, the American comedians, they're doing really well, so we have to be more like them. I have to do something that is like that, not informed by that. Not I'm going to pinch some of the ideas and mishmash it up. There was that feeling that I have to buy the same collar trousers <laughs> as that guy wears. And I think that was part of it. And it was something I meant to talk about when I'm talking about the new semi-pros. Well, and earlier I said magic. It sounds like a peculiar word, but I think with a lot of the things worth talking about, there's always a little thing, a little knotty thing in there that you can never quite find enough words to fence in. And I think that's the reason behind the popularity of things like The Room and why we found it so interesting to watch the films we watched last week on Jafferville. Is because it comes down to a lack of resources, but it means the whole thing is not slick. Now, 
producing television, producing films, producing any work of media, in theory, the formula is set. We now know how to make an action film and we'll stick to a three-act structure and the character has to learn something and, okay, here's the hope spot and here's the Joseph Campbell hero segment bits. And so, as an audience, we're always looking for something that will surprise us and we can't see the ventriloquist mouth move, we can't see the strings on the puppets. And so, it's not unusual for people to then turn to people like Tommy Wiseau because Tommy Wiseau doesn't really know how he's doing it, it's just flowing out of him. Because we went through a period, and maybe that period hasn't quite finished yet, where people knew what they were doing and knew what they wanted to do, and they were trying to follow in the footsteps of people who had a faint idea of what they were doing, knew pretty much how they wanted to do it, but allowed certain bits of it to just not be worried about. Because, well, people started carrying their own focus groups in their heads. And the self-censorship was anything that might run counter to whatever tastes they thought they were trying to pitch to. I hear what you're saying, and I agree with it, but there was one thing I'll tell you that might completely change your mind about this show. There's an episode with Lionel Blair in it. Well, we'll see how he's treated. Oh, I'm sure he was all right. I'm envisaging that he probably comes on. And it's like, oh, look, it's Lionel Blair. They'd be going on about Lionel Blair like for the last 20 minutes, and then suddenly he's there, and it's like, wait, look at that. Wait a minute. It's not an episode where... Samantha Janus says, I'm friends with Lionel Blair. Maybe we can get him to come to that gala. If it is, it goes on the list. So that's Christmas for you. And it's been an unusual Christmas episode because it's just been us talking about various things. It is Christmas and we hope that you have a cracker in your hand and that you have a lovely steaming mug of Bovro by your side. Or Smoking Bishop. Indeed. We will be back next year. We might not be taking our customary winter break. So we might be back in January or February. And we're not going to be doing the whole series idea that we originally started out on. We're just going to be bouncing around our different strands. Next week, we're going to be doing a Jaffa Cake jukebox. Just the perfect soundtrack to your New Year's Eve party. Is it really, though? Yes, it will be. I'll be picking some of the music. So, the sitcom club will be back when it's back, as will Jafferville, Jaffa Cakes of Proust. Aren't you really glad that it's 2018 and you've got all these wonderful TV channels to choose from? As opposed to, say, I don't know, 1978 when you only had three of them and there was a little brief window where it looked like that none of them were going to be broadcasting? Imagine that Christmas uh-huh. with no TV. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, you don't need to imagine it because somebody who's now spent quite a considerable amount of time writing about it and is actually going slightly around the twist on the subject because it's like a massive big research rabbit hole that you can never escape from. Somebody has written up the story of the Christmas that almost never was, 1978, and you can find the article on transdiffusion.org. Of course, I was recently on Just One More Thing, the podcast about Columbo. mentioned that earlier, so if you want to go to thecitydesk.net forward slash just one more thing and I'm on the show called All Full of Blue Blotches. I'm looking at the Columbo episode, Uneasy Lies the Crown. It's from the 90s. I wasn't entirely thrilled with it, but the presenters, RJ and John, make a good case that I shouldn't be so hard on it. In fact, it's worth mentioning, John Morris from Just One More Thing, he helped us a while ago when we did the Ropers. 
And at that time, I plugged his book, The League of Regrettable Superheroes. Since then, he's written The League of Regrettable Supervillains. And this year, he's completed the trilogy with The League of Regrettable Sidekicks. And those three books are available from anywhere you should be able to get decent books from, including the very, very famous website. Everybody feels guilty from buying there. But get the book. And if you want to know more about the other presenter of Just One More Thing, RJ White, just go to RJ White com. He's got some interesting non-aesthetic pictures on there, but there's also a bio at the top that lets you know what else he's doing when he's not columboing. And if you happen to be going through the TV dial and you've already seen everything that's on Talking Pictures TV, and they're not paying us, by the way, I'm just plugging them because it's the best channel on earth. But if you find yourself away from the screen and you still want some top entertainment this festive season, there is only one place to go and that is podnose.com, where you will find quite literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of podcasts to listen to over the festive season. From Mr. Tilt. Feliz Navidad! Prospero año. I thank you very much indeed to everybody who's been listening to us for the past few weeks and months and years. Very, very, very happy holidays to you all. Have a fabulous new year. We'll be back with you very, very soon indeed. And this is indeed the Sitcom Club. Wishing you all a very, merry Christmas.